Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Steve and Don, welcome to the pop off. Thank you so much for taking the time to pop with me. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, total pleasure to talk to you. We've listened to a few of your podcasts and really like what you're doing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So, we, I feel like we have so many things to talk about. I don't even know where to start. Um, do you want to start with the music or do you want to start with your book? Uh, we can start with either. We can just chit chat about the weather. How are things uh, uh, your way? Cold. I'm in Western yeah. Pennsylvania. So, um, yeah, we're pretty cold out here. I see. I see. Man, it is so warm here. It's it's frightening. It's, it's, it's frightening that it's this warm in February. I mean, we live in the... Uh, the Bay Area, uh, close to San Francisco, and you know it's a uh, pretty temperate climate most of the time. But uh, we're starting to have days in the high seventies and eighties already, and that that's really unusual. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, climate change deniers. Hello. Yeah, I know, I know. We had we would go from. I actually took a screenshot of my weather app on my phone the one day because we went from. 60 degrees one day to 32 within the week. Yeah. And snow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's all over the place, but Matisse, I mean, it's, it's quite obvious that, uh, um, you know, there's, there's some massive troubles in the world right now. Absolutely. uh, A real inflection point uh, in our lives right now. I mean, it's not the first inflection point in history and it certainly won't be the last, but my goodness, so many things coming to a head right now that, uh, like I say, it's semi-frightening. Yeah, it's ominous for sure. Definitely. You know what's crazy is that I remember when I was in, I was in middle school, so that would have been like the early 90s, and I remember our one teacher talking about how California was going to fall off of <laughs> the states, and it was there was going to be a big earthquake, And it was just going to fall off. And I remember like going home and being like terrified for all the people that lived in California. Uh And I remember them, I remember the teacher distinctly saying that it was going to happen like by the year 2000. Right. Which is crazy Mm -hmm. thinking about, you know, 
that, but there are a lot more earthquakes, you know, and stronger ones than there ever have been. Right. Well, you know, I, I remember, uh, if you want to go back to, to those days, I remember in the eighties, there was that movie, what was it? The, the, was it called the day after or something like that about the nuclear Holocaust, um, where a nuclear war broke out and it kind of centered around, um, centered around conflict occurring, um, uh, around Ukraine and that part of the world. Yeah. And man, you know, I, uh, recently I just keep remembering that movie and the, horrific imagery of that movie and then i think about current events with ukraine and and just how you know again we're at major inflection points in the world uh as far as geopolitical things Mm -hmm. as far as uh uh, weather things as far as you know we're living on the cusp of uh technology that increases and leaps and bounds and then people that question science and people that uh come out from under rocks over the last few years you know since our previous uh president you know has unleashed that kind of mindset in our country right um it's just uh it's a crazy time it's a really really crazy time and i i don't say that as though there's no hope you know i think there's always hope and always a chance to move forward but uh certainly man things are coming to a crisis right now like like i've never seen in my you know 55 years of living i remember when i was in high school we had to read uh george orwell's 1984 mm-hmm And I actually have it out to reread, but I stopped because I was reading your book and I wanted to put my full attention on that, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But I remember like the most things that I remember about 1984 was, you know, obviously Big Brother and everybody's watching you. And like the whole concept was you let these people in on your own accord. And it's kind of like, I mean, that that is what we do. You know, people are so worried about, oh, my goodness, I don't want to get a vaccine because people are going to put a chip in you. And it's like the chip is already in your hand. You're talking yeah, on it. You're, you're talking. surfing the Internet. You know, like you um, you accept these terms and conditions, which nobody reads. And I don't read them either. But they're basically tracking everything that you do with your phone. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's no place you can go. There's nothing you can do where people don't know where you are, you know, in government don't know where you are and know what you're doing. And you're right. It's just uh, it's lunacy. Some of the conspiracy theories that have cropped up uh, during COVID and uh, around the vaccines and um, just some of the chaos that's been caused by the people that uh, that just don't want to. they want to question science continually. Right. Um, that, that have no background in science, absolutely don't even understand what they're talking about. But people get so wrapped up in the conspiracy and they talk about freedom, you know, and how they want to keep their um, uh, their independence and freedom during this time. And it's like, well, you've already, you've already sacrificed that as soon as you make a phone call or as soon as you use your credit card or yep. as soon as you, you know, go across a toll bridge and you're, license plate gets read by the by the cameras you know it's just like i don't know again here we are at that inflection point right and and not only that but i mean you have to renew your driver's license you have to get a driver's license you have to register register your car you have to register your house you have to pay taxes on your house you have Mm -hmm. to pay taxes on 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 your house even if you already own it and have already paid the taxes on the house so (laughs) I mean, like we're sitting here and we're talking about freedom and it's like, I, you know, I remember years ago when people were like, I'm not wearing my seatbelt. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. I don't care. I'm not wearing it. 
<laughs> and now it's like, oh my goodness, I will put my seatbelt on just to get that dinging to stop. <laughs> yeah, I remember those days too, never wearing a seatbelt, uh, having a few cars that didn't even have a minute. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't think twice about, you know, some of the things we were doing back then. Uh, but as you gain knowledge, as you gain experience, as you see the cultural effects of these and societal effects of these things that are benefits, um, then eventually, you know, those those conspiracies and those naysayers go away. But it just takes a, a super long time. It just causes so much chaos in the world and and uh, such breakage between people, you know, such conflict between people. And don't get me wrong. I love a good conspiracy theory. And <laughs> years, probably about like five or six years ago, we went to me and my family went to Vegas and we went to the mob museum, which if you've never been there before, the next time you're in Vegas, please go. It was one of the best things that I've ever done in Vegas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the conspiracy theory that the government killed JFK. Mm-hmm. And, well, no, the mob did it. Right. But who hired the mob to do it? And I remember we were walking in and my dad's like, no, 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 the government wouldn't do that. The government wouldn't do that. And I'm like, that's what they want you to think. So we go in and I asked the tour guide. I said, excuse me. I said, you tell me who who killed JFK? And he was like, well, the mob did, but the mob was hired by the government. And I was like, dad, I'm like, this guy right here, like he knows about this. Like he's the expert. Like, are you going to listen to him? So I love a good conspiracy theory, but Mm -hmm. also you got to get the facts behind it. Yeah, I I suppose so. People just, you know, people love to, I guess you're right. People love, uh, conspiracies and you know maybe it's just part of the human condition you know that we we love that kind of conflict maybe that's part of being human is to uh to try to question things and to uh to sometimes come up with uh, theories that are just way off base you know or uh, sometimes come up with theories that are right on target you know mm-hmm. uh, but i think part of that questioning is what we need to do continually um but certainly when when you have scientific data or some sort of uh, overwhelming proof that things work or that things are beneficial to society, you you have to put some of your faith in that. I mean, um, you can't go around just um, uh, causing conflict continually uh, from a point of, of ignorance where you don't have the facts. Right. And that's the thing, like with the facts, like facts are provable. So at some point you have to believe in something. Right. You know, I suppose so. Unless you know, unless you're a nihilist. Or, well, yeah, that's true. Unless you, unless you have some other philosophy that says you don't need to believe in in anything. You know, uh, I think uh, folks like uh, some of the uh, age of reason philosophers, you know, Descartes and folks like that, they prove that we don't necessarily have to believe in in anything. Um, but again, you know, how how can you live your life that way right. in the material world? So. Exactly. Okay. So let's get to your book because I have to say I loved it and I couldn't put it down. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I I, I liked the love story behind it, but then it also made me angry, which I'm sure that that's kind of what you wanted people to feel. So do you want to give everybody like a brief description of it and kind of what your inspiration was? Yeah, sure, sure. It's, um, you know, it's... Uh, it's so convoluted in so many ways. There's so many different storylines taking place within it. And um, I originally 
Well, to, to take a step backwards, and all through my college years and my youth, I you know had this dream of becoming a, an author, following in the footsteps of uh, expat writers like Hemingway, Fitzgerald, uh, folks who moved overseas and written novels um, uh, that dealt with you know a modernist kind of perspective. And I gave that a shot. You know, I, I took off um, after I graduated from the University of Cincinnati. I moved to Paris. Uh, I lived in the Netherlands for on and off for a couple of years, um, and I, I tried to put together a couple of novels. I got to the end of the first draft of Carnival Songs and uh, the end of the first draft of another, and just ended up not really liking them. You know, I just didn't really think they measured up to the the folks that I idolized. And um, at that point, I just took everything that I had written and I I stuffed it into an ice chest and uh, just always had plans to come back to it, but. As life went along, uh, my my uh, my music kind of took off. I got a developmental deal with Capitol Records, uh, made a record for them that they didn't release, but I uh, got enough money to open a recording studio. And then life just kept moving along. Had children, uh, began a teaching career, and you know, seventy-two hour work weeks just weren't conducive to coming back to the writing. Um, and then eventually, uh, after I went through a, a failed marriage and an end of a end of a teaching career, uh, came up to grad school at Sonoma State University here close in the in the Bay Area, close to us, and um, decided to try to revisit one of those novels for my for my master's thesis. Uh, not really thinking about publishing anything, just really thinking about you know uh, having a, a thesis to work on to. To get a master's degree, it was uh, just kind of a personal goal that I carried for a long time and wanted to finally achieve it. And uh, coming back to that story of carnival songs, I grew up in a very conservative area of the United States, right there in the tri-state area of Cincinnati, you know, northern Kentucky, um, right there on the edge of Indiana. And um, I grew up also in a very conservative uh, theologic household. My mother was a pretty strict Baptist and so um, grew up reading biblical text um, all through my uh, teen years, you know, early childhood years and into my teen years. And um, uh, as I got older, some of those concepts um, that were carried by people in the community that that uh, dealt with theology, that but also bled over into their politics and into their uh, belief systems about race, um, began to be pressing in my thoughts. And so I thought I was going to write a novel that um, that dealt with uh, theology. My father was also a uh, auditor for the state of Ohio. And so I saw how politics kind of ripped his life apart. Uh, he had never lost an election until his last one. And that was the end of his political career. <laughs> Uh, but I, you know, I took all these things, theology growing up in that area with racism and homophobia and, uh, again, my father's politics. And I thought, wow, I've got a really great foundation for uh, a novel, you know, where I can take a character that is involved in small town politics and try to develop a love story around that. Well, I was also uh, a beneficiary since my father was so deeply in politics uh, I was also a beneficiary of nepotism, and I landed all kinds of uh, political jobs, you know, jobs where if your parent is an elected official, uh, um, certainly there were job opportunities open for me that probably weren't open for everybody else. 
I mean, I don't say that out of, out of pride or out of uh, bragging, but certainly just it's a matter of fact. Right. And as I was working for the uh, Department of Transportation, uh, I had a uh, an acquaintance who was a secretary there, and I happened to tell her that I was working on a novel, I had aspirations to become a writer, and she told me this story about South uh, southeastern Indiana in a town called uh, Lawrenceburg, which I changed to Torrenceburg in the novel, where a, uh, a black man was accused of raping a uh, young white girl and that he had been uh, beaten to death uh, as a result of it by local law enforcement, but that no one had ever faced any consequences because of it. It was kind of just a local legend, local story that uh, wasn't pursued by law enforcement. So as I got to the end of my senior year in college, I I already had some notes uh, regarding this novel that I was originally going to write, and I decided to go do research in Lawrenceburg to see if I could track down the story. Well, you know, it's pre, pre-internet, pre-Google. Uh, everything is done through going to libraries and uh, doing public uh, records requests, and uh, I ran into so many stone walls, but ended up talking to a lot of people in the community, uh, specifically at bars. I would spend every weekend there for about 12 weeks of my senior year in college uh, researching this and just trying to dig into the story, see if there was any you know, validity to it. Um, I can neither prove nor disprove that it occurred because nobody in law enforcement there would give me any access to anything really. Um, but through the stories that I heard in the clubs that I would go to, um, there seemed to be quite a bit of uh, legitimacy to the story. And so I began to take notes. Uh, I would go to the clubs, listen to what people would have to say. Uh, Lawrenceburg as well, for the longest time, was the regional seat for the KKK. So many of these clubs I was going into uh, were filled with KKK members who also were spouting off their um, uh, backwards belief systems about race. And, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't give away what I was doing. I neither um, endorsed nor, you know, uh, uh, protested what they were saying. I was just there trying to observe and write down what they were saying. And I just made uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of pages of notes. I'd go back to the hotel that night after listening to what they have to say and make sketches of it. Um, and then at the end of 12 weeks, again, I, I couldn't conclusively prove that anything had occurred, but I heard so many stories about this, this beating, about this story of uh, the, uh, the black man who had been beaten to death, that uh, I began to believe in the validity of the story. And um, at the end of that, of that period, uh, after I graduated from college, I, I moved to Paris and tried to piece this novel together. And um, again, as I got to the end of it, I reread it, didn't like it in its first form. Um, and as I said, I put everything away. And when I pulled it out to start working on it, to reconstruct it for my master's, uh, as I was working with uh, my mentors at the college, um, two terrifically genius, genius uh, writers themselves, uh, Stefan Kiesby and uh, Noel Oxenhandler, they, um, they really cautioned me about the book, you know, as they were reading the first part of it. They were just like, this is way, way too um, uh, offensive 
for any publisher to pick up. And no one in the public is going to want to touch this book, um, mainly because of the themes in it and the language in it, uh, just how harsh it was um, as far as the events I depicted in the book. And so at first, the first half of the book that they read through and helped me rewrite, um, they were they were very cautious. They were like, you're going to get all kinds of blowback. People are going to think that you're racist. People are going to think that, you know, you are uh, promoting these kind of belief systems. And uh, so I kind of took that to heart a little bit. I was like, well, I'm not really thinking about publishing. I'm just thinking about finishing the book and getting this master's degree. Well, by the end of the book, I had both of those professors and mentors telling me that I had to publish it. They were just like, ah, we now see what you're trying to do with this novel. And it all makes sense. And especially especially during this era, uh, this is the book for the for the time. Mm-hmm. And um, again, I, I really didn't think anybody would publish it. I ended up sending out a handful of query letters to see if anybody was interested. Um, Dawn and I uh, had booked some shows in the Midwest, actually, last summer, the summer of uh, 21. And um, we were doing shows and vacationing. We were actually having breakfast and my phone buzzed and I was driving. And I asked Dawn to take a look at the phone, you know, and tell me what what I'd received. And she said, oh, it's a publisher writing to you. And I said, oh, another rejection, right? And she read through it and was kind of quiet for a few minutes. And I figured, well, you're just trying to figure out how to break the news to me that somebody else has rejected the book. And uh, she's like, no, no, somebody somebody wants to pick up your book. And uh, I tell you what, uh, Martise, it was total validation in that moment, you know, just like, oh, my gosh, you know, I – I just felt like I was on cloud nine Mm -hmm. and everything just moved so quickly from there. You know, uh, within two months, the publisher had the the book ready to be uh, put out. Uh, We started putting all the promotional materials together. And in October, uh, as soon as it came out, man, it just I thought maybe it would sell a handful of copies to friends and family. Um, But the reception to the book, uh, the sales of the book have just been phenomenal. I can't I it's beyond my wildest dreams, to tell you the truth. So I think I took a very long route away around <laughs> your original question, but that's kind of how the book came together and, and that's where we're at right now with it. No, that was perfect. I do have a question. How yeah. hard was it for you when you were in the bars with like the KKK members? How hard was it to I guess keep your mouth shut? Difficult. I mean Martis, I I grew up you know, my life as probably everybody's life has been an evolution of uh, thoughts and belief systems and perspectives on living. I, I grew up in a very rural agricultural community. Uh, my family for a brief time owned, owned a pig farm. Um, I grew up being lent out by my father to every farmer in the neighborhood. And so these attitudes, uh, these both theologic and racist attitudes were things that were were ground into me, you know, they were driven into me to the point where I won't say that I embraced them, but certainly I heard it around me so many times. I was in a community where those ideas and attitudes were embraced, that it was was difficult. It was difficult to ostracize yourself within that community. Uh, it wasn't really until I got into my late teens and moved to uh, Cincinnati to a a larger metropolis and had um, interactions with people from, from other races and other cultures that 
my eyes began to open a lot more. And so it was part of, a, of an evolution. It was part of a transition. Uh, certainly by the time I was doing this research and sitting in these bars and hearing the banter and nonsense uh, that was being put forth by people from, you know, the regional KKK, um, I had a revulsion for that type of attitude. But how to deal with it and how to um, confront it, well, that that was another another process in my evolution that was going to take me a while, you know, to be able to stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, um, uh, and plus, you know, I just didn't want to give away, I didn't want to give, you know, the cat out, let the cat out of the bag about what I was doing there. So right. I also had that perspective where I, I really couldn't, if I was going to gather the information, there was no way I could stand up and get in confrontation. Mm-hmm. I was also born and raised in a small town. I'm still in that small town. And I mm-hmm. noticed like so many parallels from the nepotism in politics and even just kind of anywhere in business. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it goes on all the time. And like my dad has been a barber in our town for, he just passed 60 years. So Mm -hmm. my family knows, you know, my dad knows a lot of people and I always I don't want to say you take advantage of it, but I never wanted something to be given to me. It's like, hey, can, mm-hmm. I, can I get that interview? Don't give me the job, but let, let me get that interview and then mm-hmm. see what you think. You know, and in those senses, like, I'm OK with that because I feel like it's always about who you know. And mm-hmm. somebody's going to give you some kind of in. And to an extent, it's. You know, it, it, I mean, it, it kind of is what it is, but also like so many parallels from now with with the police. And it's like in your book, I mean, how long ago was that? That was in the 80s that they had supposedly beat that black man to death. No, it was it was early 70s, actually, in the book and 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 real life. <laughs> I yeah. don't know what is, what is real life. But uh, but yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, um, I, I wish I wish I could say that. I was so noble as to uh, say, dad, you know, just get me the interview. I wasn't quite that noble, Martise. I was like, right on. I'm going to take this job right now. Yeah. It pays me double what any of my other friends are making. And um, where I get to get out, you know, work for the Department of Transportation, just drive trucks around town all day. You know, I I wasn't that noble when I was younger, Martise. You know, again, my life has been an evolution. And I think a lot of people... Uh, do evolve like that. You know, it's so funny, uh, Martise, I, I moved from that small town um, in Ohio and found myself in a very similar small town in the desert where Dawn and I met. Mm-hmm. And uh, as Dawn grew up in that small town, so she could probably speak a bit more to what life is like there in that high desert town where she grew up. Um, but the the uh, connections, the crossover is just, uh, it's astounding. You know, I had a friend, I have a friend in London, uh, Nick Hannon. He's a relatively well-known musician in that area, but uh, he had just finished reading Carnival songs. And he's like, I can't believe that the area you grew up in is like this. And I was like, Nick, it's not just that area. You know, there are states across, there, there are states across America, across the United States, uh, that lean more either liberal 
or lean more conservative. But there are pockets in every single state, even in California, where racism, homophobia, misogyny, all those things still prevail. Mm -hmm. And um, how do we, you know, how do we get rid of those things? You know, they've been around forever. They're part of the fabric of America. You know, it's like the people that that rail against CRT, you know, uh, critical race theory. Um, it's like, man, don't don't you want to know the truth? Don't you? You know, people live in such alternate universes, and Don and I talk about that all the time. How how do people live in an alternate universe where their sense of reality is uh, it, it's untrue? It's a fabricated lie, and yet they they continue to hang on to it and believe in it and espouse it in their communities when. I'm I'm just flabbergasted at wondering how they can even hang on to those untruths and make them the central focus of their lives. And like I said, Dawn can tell you the same thing about the areas she grew up in. Yes, I want to hear that. Ben, I, I also feel like, especially now, like now that there is so much exposure and we have the internet and we have TV and everything is out there, like you're not learning anything new. At, you know, at this point, it's it's like you want to be blind to everything that's going on. Like my parents, my mom grew up in Youngstown, Ohio. So it was pretty diverse where she grew up. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I when I talk to my parents, I'm like, don't you realize like what was going on? You know, it's like like this was your time. This was your generation, your era. My dad was like, we didn't really watch the news because, of course, it wasn't, you know, 24 hour news back Mm -hmm. then he was like we just wanted to go out and dance and meet girls and (laughs) whether it you know whether they were black or white or if they were good looking and having fun we didn't care Mm -hmm. so it was almost like they never saw it because like you know like i said my mom grew up in in a diverse area so for her it was just like okay that's you know so and so from my class but now, now that you see everything and everything is right in front of your face, it's like you're just blatantly wanting to ignore it. Right. You know? Right. You know, and and, and again, you know, I, I think Dawn can attest to this. I mean, she grew up in an area in the high desert of California where it it's not that uncommon to see somebody still flying a Confederate flag <laughs> or somebody that is you know, carrying all kinds of animosity uh, against people of other races or other cultures. You know, um, xenophobia is still just as strong today in those pockets of the world as they were, let's say, in 1965. Right. So. Yeah. Like, as you were saying, even blue states, you know, they have these pockets of conservative towns and Yucca Valley is definitely one of those pockets. I mean, if you look at if you just look at the town council, they're like all members of the church and there's so few like people running for office that only members of the church vote. And so it's just over and over again, members of the church running the town. And I remember 2017 uh, during the election, there was just along Route 66 on the highway through right through the middle of town. There's just nothing but Trump flags, you know, all over the place and there's definitely that uh, attitude carried everywhere in there. Like, um, I remember in our high school, like, during that year, they spray-painted the wall, like, Trump 2020 and all that stuff. Um, 
it's definitely one of those pockets. But ironically, nowadays it's kind of it's kind of strange having um, people from LA kind of starting to discover Yucca Valley and kind of take over. And there's a bit of a what would you say backlash? Yeah, there's quite a quite a backlash going on there right now. Quite a, there's always a war going on between the conservatives and the liberals in that area, and it's always fascinating to. Uh, to observe right. yeah and, and and for sure you know you you talk martise about you know the access to information that we have today well i mean it's a two-edged sword because not only do we have access to that information but also those that want to direct dis or misinformation towards us have the ability to do so a hundredfold than they ever did a thousandfold than they ever Very did before true. you know i almost feel as though if the internet would have been around in 1952 we'd still have polio you know, because people would have been saying uh, uh, Eisenhower's trying to put a chip in our arm or something, you know, or yeah. trying to change our DNA. You know, it's X-Files stuff, which is a great show. I love the X-Files. It is Don't a good show. Me. Yes. Very good show. <laughs> but, but there's got to be a limit to fantasy. There's got to be a place where you limit your fantasy and accept reason and accept um, accept uh, scientific fact and or accept um, uh what what history tells us about you know things like uh, people that protest against critical race theory or something like that you know uh, we do have institutionalized racism and we should feel a bit of discomfort um, about about that in our in our modern culture the only way to move forward and to grow is to go through accepting the pain of the pain that we've caused to others you know I I can immediately say that I am a 100% beneficiary of white privilege. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in an area where jobs and opportunities and access to education were far, far more open to me than they were to uh, folks that lived in the projects across the river. I mean, that is just a fact. Now, how do we make uh, – how do we make uh, – uh, amends for that going down the road i don't have the answer to that but i'm always a fan of recognizing the truth first and then trying to move forward from it instead of trying to sweep it under the rug by by banning it from schools or banning books from schools or uh limiting voting rights for people you know because they they can't get out of their house or they don't like don't they don't have the proper id or they don't have a car to get to the polls i mean you know, you try to you see our Congress try to push through something like a, a voting rights uh, a bill and people, you know, on the right want to smother it because they are so fearful that they will be overwhelmed by people being able to vote. You know, they want to just keep the vote in the hands of people, of people that have um, uh, wealth and money so they can continue to protect that wealth and that position in society. And that, more than anything, is what, you know, a uh, this censorship from the right or banning CRT or banning books or limiting voting rights is all about. It, it's, it just boggles my mind that people don't want the truth. But, you know, as I say, money and power changes everything. You're right. And then, and then you have, like, people from small towns like mine that go, well, what do we need all these uh, changes in voting for? I've never had an issue you know, going to vote. And it's like, well, yeah, but the place that I vote, I could walk to. 
if mm-hmm. I needed to. That's not the case for somebody who lives in a big city. Mm-hmm. And in most big cities, you don't need a car. And that's mm-hmm. fine. But if you don't have access to transportation or access to childcare, how can you go and vote? Right. Or if you're waiting in line for hours upon hours, not everybody can do that because you might not get, you know, an entire day off to go vote. Right. Right. And, and, and Martins, everything we're talking about uh, uh, is something that I tried to, to, to come all the way full circle back is something I tried to uh, uncover in carnival songs in the novel and to expose where do these attitudes come from? How do we carry them both consciously and subconsciously? How do we uh, um, how do we see them in these characters that are you know most of the action in that novel takes place in the early '90s, some of it in the '70s, but it also pans all the way back to the early 19th century, uh, all the way back to the the early 1800s, and how have these things culminated in a um, it culminated into the mess that we have in contemporary society. And it's always my hope, you know, uh, it's my hope that the book will do something to open eyes. You know, it's, it's harsh and uh, the themes within it are difficult. The language in it is difficult. Um, But it's through these difficulties and recognition of, of these things in these characters that hopefully we begin to see something within ourselves and hopefully we begin to evolve a little bit. You know, I'm not narcissistic enough to think that my book is going to be read in every classroom or is going to be on everybody's bookshelf. Wouldn't that be a delight if that happened? Uh-huh. But, you know, it, it's just my hope that maybe I can play a small part through this novel to open people's eyes to those things that are in our culture and um, hopefully make some progress eventually. I do think that when... You, when you use those harsh words, you're not using them just to use them. You know what I mean? It's like right. you're using it because that's that's the words that people use then. Yeah. And it should make you feel some kind of way. You know I what agree. I mean? I agree. You know, I certainly don't in my personal life have the right to use many of those words or those uh, um those situations in my day-to-day life, but certainly exposing them through the characters that I've created in the novel, I think is fair game. And I think it's totally fair game to expose certain elements of society for what they are. Right. We're never, we're never going to move forward until we recognize the past and recognize how the past is affecting our present. And um, I think people are very, very afraid of that Martise. I think especially people that uh, identify with many of the ide- ideologies uh, that are espoused by right-wing politics are very, very afraid of that exposure. And, and I also want to be clear, you know, I'm not anti-conservatism, um, uh, you know, when it comes to economic conservatism, I'm all about paying bills. I'm all about, you know, right. uh, defending ourselves and things like that. You know, I have Republican friends. Um, my problem with a, with the right is that, you know, if you have a party that has white supremacist, white, white supremacists that identify with it, that has homophobes that identify with it, that have people that want to limit a woman's right to choose 
that identify with it. Well, then that's a party I'm never, ever going to be able to come to terms with. I'm never going to be, you know, in your camp if you are uh, at your uh, political rally and it's filled with people wearing Confederate flags and saying that, you know, uh, a woman's right to choose is not her right to choose. I mean, how can <laughs> this is this is the evolution, right, Martise? This is where I'm finally able to stand up and, <laughs> and say enough's enough. Exactly. And, you know, you, you talk about evolution and. That's what's supposed to happen. Like, Mm -hmm. we're supposed to change. Our beliefs Mm -hmm. are supposed to, we're supposed to grow as people. Our beliefs are supposed to change. I'm not the same person that I was 10 years ago or even 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. So it's Mm -hmm. not even about, you know, like, oh, you're a flip-flopper and you used to believe this. Well, yeah, I did believe that. And now I'm more informed. So I have a different belief. Right, right. Well, you know, Martise, I think that I think that I and maybe a lot of folks, you know, after we went through the evolution, the the massive steps that we were taking forward during the uh, during the President Obama years, um, I think I just misunderstood or misjudged uh, just how strongly it pushed the buttons of people that carried these deep seated racist attitudes within them. And just how strong of a reaction we were going to have once uh, uh, that goofball Trump got into office, you know, and just how far he was going to be able to play upon those buttons. And um, uh, I just I misjudged it. And, and, and I think that uh, Carnival Songs coming out right now is just a, a perfect time for us to maybe take a look at those uh, at those years mm-hmm. and see just how far we did come during, you know, one of our greatest presidents ever and Obama to one of the worst presidents ever and Donald Trump. Right. Right. You, and, they, and again, there there are just so many similarities that you see from the 70s, 80s, 90s up mm-hmm. until now. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're having I feel like we're on uh, uh, like uh, uh, face the nation or uh, something like meet the press right now. This, we should uh, try to swing our conversation more towards Valentine's Day. Okay, go of, ahead. So this is you, like the Valentine's Day episode. I think. Do you? What do you? What are you doing for Dawn for Valentine's Day? Well, Dawn, what are we going to do for Valentine's Day? Uh, we will be getting some food from our favorite restaurant, the Riviera. It's a nice little Italian place here in Santa Rosa, and we'll be enjoying it here at home. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, man. There's this place, uh, as Dawn was saying, called the Riviera. We still we stumbled upon it. We don't get paid for that. That's not a paid uh, plug <laughs> for the Riviera, but it is of course. phenomenal. It is absolutely phenomenal. So hopefully, I will be able to take a link to this podcast over to them and we will get, uh, maybe some free dessert, free dessert, (laughs) free dessert. Indeed. But no, uh, uh, we, we really enjoy these, these kind of, um, uh, romantic holidays together. Um, especially with the one coming up, we always go to the Riviera for, for Valentine's day and wedding anniversary and, and, um, relationship anniversary and, and all of that great stuff. How long have you guys been together and how did you meet? Oh, gosh. We've been together for five years. Uh, we've been married. We got married uh, about a year ago. We're approaching our one-year anniversary. Uh, we met down in the desert. Uh, Dawn, as I, as I was saying earlier, she grew up there. 
Um, I taught there for about 15 years um, until I totally got burnt out on teaching. Um, so we met in that community. And um, as my previous marriage that had been declining for a decade came crashing to a halt, um, I was just looking for a way to finally get out of the desert. I mean, I, the desert is beautiful in so many ways, but, you know, I grew up in Kentucky. I grew up in the Midwest. I was used to seasons. I wanted to get back to seasons. And so Dawn and I kept in contact. She was going to school at Sonoma State. And um, I just felt like I'd reached a dead end down in the desert. And she invited me up to Northern California. And uh, I immediately came up here. We've actually started out as uh, um, uh, tennis rivals. We challenged each other to tennis. Dawn uh, slayed me on the court. She's fantastic tennis player and I hadn't played many many years and she absolutely destroyed me but I've come quite a ways with my tennis game if I do say so myself and um uh so it was love on the tennis court that's how we that's how our relationship burgeoned and then I came up north and it was just uh absolute all-encompassing um love for each other so Let's talk about you guys together. So you have yeah. a group together. We do. We play in the Fizz Fuzz. Um, we had, um, as I said, we originally started uh, getting together on the tennis court, having tennis matches that eventually blossomed into romantic feelings as um, I was transitioning from, uh, as I was transitioning from the desert to Northern California uh dawn also a guitar player and singer uh we just it was just a natural fit and uh we just started rehearsing material writing songs together uh eventually after five five or six months of rehearsing and writing together uh we booked a tour overseas and uh we went over and played a number of venues in italy um released a record uh on an italian label um, also have a uh, U.S. label out of Atlanta, Georgia, um, and um, the reception to the music uh, and our performance was was um, uh, it was just overwhelming. You know, so positive uh, feedback and the the turnout for our shows. And uh, unfortunately, we released our first record right when COVID hit, <laughs> and so the tours that we had lined up for that record uh, all got postponed. Um, for, well, gosh, well over a year, two years. And we are just now starting to get back out and uh, and play again. Yes, so I see you guys are going to Italy again in March, right? We, we are. We are. We are so yes, super excited. We have a handful of shows lined up over there with some, some awesome, awesome friends, uh, uh, a band called Maniac uh, Du Jour, and also another band called Alice Tambourine Lover. They're going to be supporting us on the bill. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're, we're totally looking forward to it. We've got a bunch of new material, getting ready to start a new record. Actually, while we're over there, we're booked into a studio in between uh, dates for the tour to uh, start working on it. And we hope to have the, uh, the new album out by the fall. So working together, what's that like for the both of you? Working together can be, well, as you can hear on the podcast, um, Steve is quite the lecturer. He loves to talk, and he uh, always has very complete thoughts, and so he finishes 
a lot of things. Um, but however, when it comes to songwriting, um, usually how it goes is one of us will start our own little song. And once we finished our concept for it, we'll share it with the other and they'll kind of make their notes and have their suggestions and we'll either agree or disagree and uh, come up with what we think is best at the end and usually have uh, quite the satisfactory resolution, I would say. Indeed. You know, working with Dawn and I, you know, I sent you a bunch of, uh, we sent you a bunch of her portfolio material, her, her photographs and paintings and things like that. Amazing. One of the most terrific things about working with Dawn, um, especially when I look at her art or all the art that she creates, is she just has this knack for the unexpected. Um, she will bring things into our music or into her photography or into her painting uh, that is is so unexpected that it is it has a haunting kind of quality to it that uh, I am just so, I don't want to say envious of, but certainly in awe of. And when I play music with her, when I look at her artwork, uh, I'm just continually blown away by what a tremendous, tremendous artist that she is. You know, the the focus in her photographs, you know, it's just like she will pick a focal point that that isn't the expected thing, or she will pick a, uh, a color or a, a way, the way the light uh, shows up in the photograph mm-hmm. that isn't the expected thing. And it just makes her, her work majestic and beautiful and um, just absolutely terrific. I mean, I'm, I think I'm her biggest fan. I'm actually kind of sure of it uh, because I just think she's an absolute genius artist. Dawn, you really are amazing. I was looking through oh, your stuff, you know, the, the other day, and it's, I mean, I guess Steve put it best. It's majestic. Well, thank you. I certainly would say it's unique and uh, perhaps surrealist. Um, majestic is very, very, um, I don't want to say, uh, um, what would I say? It's very, very kind of you. Thank you. Um <laughs> Haunting, yes, I would I would describe my art as haunting, I would say. Um, a lot of it's very, like, abstract uh, thoughts of my own that I've conceptualized into the closest visual form mm-hmm. as I can make them. But, um, yeah, a lot of it's just abstract thought that I try, try to materialize as much as I can. Yeah, I would, you know, I would say that of all the things, you know, I, living in the desert for uh, the uh, 15, 16 years that I lived there, um, there were, again, being a Midwesterner coming from a area of seasons, there were things that uh, I didn't like about the desert and things that I did like about the desert. But I can say that one of the things that the desert certainly brings out of artists there is this sense of space, the sense of uh, dynamic, uh, the sense of a nuance that uh, um, I don't know if it's the climate or if it is the um, if it's just the the visual experience of the desert. But every artist I've met from the desert certainly has this aspect within their work. And again, the best word I can use for it is unexpected. Um, you, unexpected angles, unexpected sounds, unexpected visuals uh, that are brought out by artists from that part of the country. 
And I have to say that of all the artists I've met in the desert, and I have met many, 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 uh, uh, Dawn's work is certainly the top of the heap. Thank you. That's very, uh, very gracious of you to give me that credit. <laughs> well, I mean it. Everybody. Oh, well, thanks. I've certainly seen a lot of uh, art in the desert, and I would certainly agree that it has a very unique uh I want to say special quality. It's just the desert is so vast and monochrome that kind of your senses get like tuned to these very small nuances that in like a bustling city, one might not notice. But when when you live somewhere that's like completely silent and devoid of movement, you kind of your senses hone in on very uh, small nuances that get magnified and become become their own thing uh -huh. what is your sources of inspiration when you're looking for you know whether it's a picture or something that you want to paint um well a lot of the time if i'm well when it photography and painting they kind of come from two different aspects of myself photography is more like um when I'm walking around, it comes from outside influences, like from the material world. And when I'm painting, it's much the opposite. It's much more uh, introverted uh, concepts that come from places that can't be seen by the natural eye. So, for example, like when I'm when I'm looking for like a photograph, I'm walking around and I'm looking at my surroundings and. Um, just the overall feeling of an area, and it might remind me of some other abstract thought that I'm having, and I'll try to connect the two as much as I can visually. Mm -hmm. However, for like a painting, um, it's it's all internal. Mm -hmm. Painting's all internal, while my photography is all external. So that makes sense. Uh, it's it's all surreal. It's it's hard to it's really hard to tell you where my um, inspirations will come from if they're kind of out of the ethereal, like they're out of nothing. Right, and you know I can <clears throat> I can tell you because I've been like her her spotter on a lot of her photo shoots. I mean, I'll go out and be the one that watches for traffic or <laughs> yeah. or holds the holds the lights or or you know uh, stands in the frame so she can get the focus in. Um, her 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 focus on the most small abstractions that again, as she was just saying, probably wouldn't stand out to somebody that was raised in a different part of the country or in a different environment. Um, it really becomes heightened when you see her work and the uh, focus that she puts into that work. And and I'm just kind of like when I'm helping her or assisting her, I, I certainly am in all of that focus, you know, and the, the depth of that focus and the way she maintains that focus and the subject matter that she she discovers that I would probably never see uh, from my perspective. But once you do see it, once you do start to look at her photography, when you do look at her paintings, again, it, it just, once you recognize or you're open to that unexpected essence of her work, um, it just blooms within how you look at her art. 
and then you begin to really see what she's doing and um it's again i can i can't think of no other word than magnificent as far as some where my um attitudes come from and inspirations um keep in mind i keep i i grew up with a single mother and uh was kind of locked inside the house a lot not only did i grow up in like a desolate area but um just kind of like my surroundings were rather uh rather kind of pooped in like in this little house and so all of my all of my thoughts really kind of came from just within myself cuz that's all i had to entertain myself and so um i kind of just created a lot of this own little world that i try to like expel from myself as much as i can in order to uh kind of just blossom out of that cooped up little childhood that i have had is that how you got started painting and well i guess drawing i yes i did as a child uh, i've always been very artistic i came from uh a long line of artists my dad was an artist my grandfather was an artist his grandfather was an artist wow. and so it made it just made logical sense that i would one day pick up a pencil and just start scribbling down whatever whatever seemed to flow from my mind at the time and so yeah at that time i certainly was um divulging a lot of my uh internal workings out onto the paper in order to you know kind of just cope with such a desolate um mm-hmm. surrounding my next question was going to be did you know always know that you wanted to be an artist but i'm going to go with yes <laughs> Uh, yes, I, I certainly did. It was always something that I entertained myself with. I never really, uh, I never really thought that I would like go on and like grow up and make money off of being an artist, of course, because uh, it's always, you know, discouraged uh, as a child, you know, your parents always want you to, you know, go to college, get a degree, get a good paying job and a career that's, um, that's going to guarantee, you know, uh easy living. And of course everyone knows that being an artist is definitely a guarantee to not uh make any money ever. So so I never really entertained the thought of uh growing up and being an artist, but always just within myself I uh kept it as like my little my little personal thing. Okay, so one last question for the both of you. So when you guys are working together, I mean obviously you're probably always working in in a sense, but do you guys like set aside time for like okay, this is when we're going to work and then this is when we're going to not focus on any of that and just focus on us? Like how does that work for the two of you? I think they're kind of intertwined, Martise, <laughs> in a way. I mean, we so love to create together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, in my life, I've certainly had previous uh, relationships, previous marriages, things like that. But I've never, ever been with someone that I could create with, uh, as I am now with Dawn. I mean, I'm the luckiest uh, son of a gun on the planet, and that I have not only uh, super fantastic 
person uh, that I live with who's wonderful on every single level, but someone who's also a kindred spirit with me. And uh, certainly um, uh, we are both coming along on each other's ride to, uh, to create in this lifetime to create as much thing, uh, as many pieces of art as we can. Uh, we certainly do, you know, we work for a living, we have day jobs, so we certainly have to put aside time when we can rehearse together. Um, it's not always 24 seven about creating art either. I mean, um, you know, we, we do whimsical things that mean, mean nothing sometimes, but I think every moment that we're together, we are certainly, creating art of some sort um, just by our relationship. Uh, I think every, the best way to put it is that we are certainly kindred spirits and uh, we love to make our art together. And um, I think that that is as part of the strength of our love for each other is that we we do so much love making our art together and and uh, seeing the product come or you know the products come out of us. Yeah, it is kind of in everything that we do, but we do have organized time when, of course, like we have we have our band practice every weekend, and we have uh, we have our routines for things that uh, when we spend time for just relaxing, or if we're going to spend time working on one song or another or if we're gonna do a photo shoot or if we're gonna go out and scout out like a place for a video piece or whatever but um it isn't everything that we do so it's kind of important to organize when we are and when we are not going to be working okay so we'll still be together okay so steve i'm gonna start with you first why don't you Um, tell everybody your website, where they can find your book, and your social media. No doubt, no doubt. Um, well, the book is uh, is called Carnival Songs. It is published through Golden Storyline Publishers out of London. Uh, it can, of course, be found on any major platform. Uh, I'll just say Amazon for now because that's, uh, that's a big one. Um, uh, our band, we are found at dandybrown.com. Uh, that's where you will find information on the Fizz Fuzz shows coming up. There's music there. There's photos there. There's bio there. There's anything you'd want to know about our little musical world that we've created. Um, and as for, for Dawn's art, she has her own page. I'll let her go ahead with that. You can find my page at www.dawnsgallery.wordpress.com. Um, you can find my paintings there, video pieces, and uh, picture pieces there. Um, my Instagram is Rotten Apples. Uh, a lot of my photography can be found on there. Now, can people buy your artwork on your website? On my website, it's not set up for a direct purchase through the website, but you can contact me via email uh, on my website. Okay. Because there's a few pieces that I want to buy. Oh, well, that's great. Yes. So I have to. I, I have them written down. I didn't keep them on my same notes, but I'll go to your website and I'll email you and let you know, uh, you know, which ones. Oh, I would be honored if one of my pieces were to don your walls. Oh, absolutely. I can't wait. I'm so excited. Well, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate Fantastic. it. Thank you, Martise. Like I said, we've listened to a bunch of, uh, a bunch of your podcasts and we think that, uh, 
the unfiltered uh, uh, way that you approach things is just terrific. And we wish you the best of luck with the uh, podcast. And we're just so honored to be on it. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an electric cast production. Electric acid. Electric acid.